0: John 12, we're going to read 12 through 19. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, Daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things that had been written about him and what had been done to him. And the crowd that had been with him, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went out to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another. You see that you are gaining nothing. Look the world has gone after him. So I want to talk today about the day the king came to town. And we come to this unique moment of Christ's life. Where he steps into the city. He stepped into it many times. But there's a unique Uh, event that happens as he comes in what we call the triumphal entry so we we know that Christ came into Bethany most likely on Saturday night Um, Sunday um, is probably when Mary comes into the room and they're giving this dinner and and she comes in and and brings this alabaster flask and breaks it open and anoints him so most likely that takes place on Sunday night And so on Monday is what we encounter here, and I'll share with you a little bit as to why most likely um, we believe that this took place, the triumphal entry, on Monday and not Sunday. If you'll read out there, there are two different perspectives. The triumphal entry either happened on a Sunday or a Monday, but when you look back at the calendar, it seems to be pretty clear that this took place on Monday. So this is the last week of Jesus' life. And because of that reality, him knowing what is going to happen at the end of the week, there's no doubt that his senses would have been heightened in all kinds of ways and everything that would take place this week, what he would say, him knowing what would be coming at the end of the week. And so this is a pretty momentous time. And so something happens on this day that he's not really allowed for the past three years as he allows this big, huge, demonstrative worship and celebration of who he is most of the time he's done this great work and he's told people don't go tell anybody what happened they kind of can't stop themselves and they do go and tell people but on this day there's no hushing down uh, the celebration that is taking place so I want to talk about when this event most likely took place and why that is incredibly significant When you look at the Jewish calendar, according to the Mosaic law, and you see this in Exodus chapter 12 and also in Numbers chapter 28, the Jews were instructed what they were to do as they approached the Passover. Um, In the Jewish calendar, there's a month called Nisan. And so um, in Exodus 12 and Numbers chapter 28, they were told that on the 10th of Nisan, every man were to find a lamb for themselves to choose that would be the lamb that would they would make the sacrifice for, um, for the Passover. This would take place on a Monday. And so, on, on the 14th of Nisan, which would be a Friday of that week, is when the lamb, so they would choose the lamb on Monday, the 10th. They would sacrifice the lamb on Friday, the 14th. And so, as we come to this text today, all over Israel on this day, the fathers, either if they've come already to Jerusalem for the Passover, they are choosing an unblemished lamb for their family to sacrifice and so that they will eat at the Passover. Or if they are somewhere else and couldn't make it, they are choosing this lamb for their family. So, all over the nation on this day, this was a celebra- celebrative thing that they would do. On the day that they chose the Passover lamb for their family, they would celebrate this as a family. So in Jerusalem, this is happening everywhere. And so people are choosing their lamb. They are celebrating. Now, the significant thing to note this morning is this, is that on Monday, they are choosing the lamb that they as a family will sacrifice for the Passover. It is on Monday morning that the father who has already made his choice of who will be the Passover lamb, comes riding into town. So as families are choosing their Passover lamb, the father has chosen his Passover lamb on this day, and he will be paraded into the city. Now I'll just make note of this, really important. So they would take the lamb on Friday on the 14th of Nisan, and they would slay the lamb... At about 3 p.m., and then they would begin to cook it, and they would have their Passover meal that night. It is our understanding, if you read the texts in the Gospels, that it was 3 in the afternoon when Jesus breathed his last, and this reality of things that's come for us in regard to salvation took place. And what I want you to note this morning is this God always does things according to Scripture. So this teaching in Exodus chapter 12, this teaching in Numbers chapter 28, as to when they were to choose the lamb, when the lamb was to be sacrificed, when they were to eat it, was the exact time that Jesus himself came into the city and was sacrificed on Friday afternoon. I don't want you to miss it, so pardon this repetitive thing. God does what God does in accordance with Scripture. And that's why we can have great confidence. And so, so think about that for a moment. The Passover lamb is in the temple being slain, sacrificed as Christ is outside of the city breathing his last. God bringing about this Old Testament picture and bringing it to this beautiful fulfillment in the life of Christ as he hangs on the cross. God has always provided a lamb. And here in the text, we see the Lamb of God riding into the temple, um, picturing for us the Passover Lamb, the one who would take away the sin of the world. You know, in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve have sinned. God has come to the garden. They are hiding away, and they've made man-made coverings for themselves to cover their nakedness. God comes in. They step out. God sees what they have done, and, and Genesis 3 tells us, it doesn't tell us what kind of animal, but it tells us this, that God made animal skins and covered the nakedness of Adam and Eve. And I think we can safely say, most likely, the animal that lost its life in the garden that day um, was a beginning, though it's not mentioned, was a picture of what of, of the animals that would be used in the future, and it was lambs. lamb, so it was most likely a lamb. That lost its life in the garden to cover up the nakedness of Adam and Eve. We come to Genesis chapter twenty two. Abraham has brought his son and they have they've come up on the mountain and, and it's clear there's gonna be a sacrifice. Abraham said there's gonna be a sacrifice, and Abra and, and Isaac looks around and is like, Okay where is the sacrifice? What in the world? And then then Abraham, you know, lays Isaac down and but but Isaac asks a question, "Where's where's the sacrifice? Where where is it?" And, and Abraham says these powerful words, "The Lord will provide a lamb. He will provide." And I have great news for us this morning. Our world is searching for a savior, and God has already provided the lamb who's been sacrificed for us so that you and I can be in a relationship with Him. In Revelation chapter 5 verse 12, John hears these gathered around the throne in heaven and they say these words, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. So we're going to begin to talk about the significance of Christ being the Lamb of God for us today and how important that is. So let me... First of all, this morning, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. I want to talk about the deep longing of the Messiah in the Jewish mind, and and so that we can uh, kind of take a look at that and see um, what they kind of thought, what they were expecting, kind of what was kind of centered in their heart. So this is the Messiah in the Jewish mind. The Hebrew word for Messiah, first of all, means to anoint. When you come to the Greek word for anoint, that is the word Christ. Christ. And so, so this this, is, this picture is that, is that their understanding of the Messiah is that he would be anointed by God who would come and he would have this specific purpose. But through time, they began to lose sight of that the Messiah wasn't one who would come and rescue them from sin. They began to see the Messiah. Secondly, I want to talk about now, is they began to see him as a conquering king who would deliver them from their oppressors. And this was the predominant thought 2,000 years ago when Christ was here is that Israel needed a king it needed a warrior to march into the city to get rid of Rome and that would be what the messiah would do and so they longed for a king to free them the problem is they just always seemed to look to the wrong king and if you've read first and second kings and first and second chronicles they just did not have many good kings who pictured for them holiness and righteousness in these things. And so this was predominantly the idea in John chapter 12 of what they thought. Now there were some in the nation who would have understood some of the teaching in the Old Testament that the Messiah would actually be a suffering servant. And you see this in Psalm 110 and Isaiah chapters 40 all the way through 55 and most predominantly and uniquely in Isaiah chapter 53. And so um, there's a reference, as we see here in Zechariah, that we'll see in a moment of, of uh, the Messiah coming in on a donkey. He didn't come riding in on a huge horse with a big army with him. And so this truth had, must have been lost on many of them as they see Christ riding into the city on this day. So this was A deep longing that they had for the coming of the Messiah, but many of them um, were centered and focused on, we need a Messiah, we need an anointed one that would free us from Rome. And so let's begin to look at the text now, and I've kind of centered everything around the word day, because this is a very significant day, and this day unfolds a, a number of unique things that we need to see this morning. So I want you to do something for me, and we're going to come back to John chapter 12. I want you to go to Mark chapter 11, and we're going to spend a little bit of time in Mark chapter 11. Uh, Mark shares something with us about the triumphal entry that John doesn't include, and there's some things here that I think are really important uh, to note. And so as we begin, I want to talk about um, some things that happen uh, on the day that the sovereign plan of God unfolds here. So Mark chapter 11, and let's read 1 through 7, and then we'll get back to John chapter 12. So Mark gives us this unique perspective. So now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says this to you, why are you doing this? You say to them, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. This is a fascinating little tidbit of information that John doesn't include. And there's some really great practical lessons for us in our life that I would like to begin to walk us through here. So as this day gets going, the sovereign plan of God unfolds. Jesus knew what was going to happen. Um, So there's two possibilities here. He has planned this already. He's talked to the owner. Or he just knows how this is going to go. And so he just tells the two disciples what they ought to say. When, when, if anybody says anything, he tells them where to go and what they will notice and see. Whatever the case is, note this, that God has a plan. God has a plan. That means right now, on this June day, in 2021, God has a plan. For the world, in the midst of the chaos, God is uniquely working according to to his plan, not our plan, not somebody else's plan, not a government's plan, not these powerful people, not this group. He is working things according to his plan. When last year when everything was so chaotic and there was so much confusion going on, guess what God was doing? He was sovereignly working his plan. He is always about that. And so when the world rages and the world is chaotic, we as His people can remain trustful that God's not panicked. He's secure, He is working things out according to His plan. And whatever it is that He does, whether He's planned this and talked to the owner. Or he just knows how it is going to work out. We see that he's got an incredible plan. And most likely, when you read what the text says here, that this person who owns this cult of a donkey likely has believed in Jesus because of what Jesus tells the two to tell them. He doesn't tell them, tell them Jesus needs this. He tells them you tell them that the Lord needs this. And so this, these people would have known who the Lord was, that this is Jesus. And so most likely, whoever owns this has already got a relationship. They've believed in Jesus as the Messiah. And so if the Lord needs it, what do we do? We give it up. We give it up if this is what the Lord is asking for. Well, I don't know if you've ever learned lessons from a donkey, but we're going to learn some lessons from a donkey just for a moment, this particular donkey. I don't know if it had a name, but it's got some unique characteristics that are important. Mark eleven two tells us, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt on which, notice this, on which no one has ever sat, untie it, and bring it. If you want to have some fun today, go home and go to YouTube and type in, people riding animals that have never been ridden on. I don't recommend you getting on an animal that's never been ridden before. They don't like you climbing up on their back. They will throw you off. They will stomp you. They will do all kinds of things. So I want you to notice this. Here is an animal that's never been ridden before. It's tied up. It's bound. And Jesus tells these two guys, go in there And find this animal and get it and bring it back here. And when they bring it back, they carry it most likely by a rope. It gets to Jesus. They put blankets on it. And what does Jesus do? He sits on it. He doesn't train it for a moment. He just sits on it. Indicating this unique power about Christ. When we surrender to Him. Though we are wild and untamed, he brings a soundness and a stability to our life that was not there, and now he can guide us, lead us, in where he wants to go. So he does this with a donkey, and I look around this room, and I know many of our stories, you know my story, and has he not done that in our own lives? Were we not wild and untamed at one particular point in time? in the soundness of Christ, mastering us and leading us and empowering us to know the glory of who He is. What did the donkey need to do when it came and Jesus sat on it? It needed to submit. It needed to submit, and that is what you and I needed to do. We need to submit to Him. We need to fully surrender to Him, and that's exactly what the donkey needed and what the donkey did think for a moment and think about how he has changed your life think about the things that used to be a struggle for you and now not that you're we are overconfident but we know that when that temptation comes we can say no I'm not going there been down that road I'm not going to go down that direction again and he's brought again a soundness of mind and a stability in our spirit to not go in those places now, those places in our life that are still wild and untamed, do they not cause problems for us? Because we have not surrendered them to him. Let me give you one other healthy perspective of what Christ does in a life when his presence and there's a surrendering to him. I love what it says here. It says, Tell them that the Lord has need of it and will send it back immediately. So he rides it. Somebody was in charge of taking the donkey back and putting it back where it was and giving it back to the owner. When that donkey got back to the owner, was it better or worse off? That's a response question, by the way. It was better, right? It was better. This is what he does. And I love this reality about him. He will take a life that is confused and lost and untamed. He will tame it. And He will make that life better. Now, we're not talking about better, as in the goal of God is to make us better. He wants to make us righteous and holy. But He does, let's just be honest, He makes our lives better, does He not, when He touches us. And He tames those aspects about us that are a little out of place. And when He changes us, we become better husbands. We become better wives, moms, dads, teachers, servants, better kids, workers, there's just a transformation that happens and takes place in our lives. When that donkey left, it was unbroken and untried, but when it came home, it came home ready for a saddle and ready for use because it had submitted itself under the lordship of Christ. You see, he takes what we give him, and if and when he gives it back, sometimes sometimes, he says, give this to me, and I'm going to keep it, and I'm going to do something else with it. But sometimes he gives it back, and when he gives it back, it is always better when he gives it back. Now, if, that, if you don't believe me, let me give you some biblical evidence. He can take an idol worshiper by the name of Abram, and he can give him a new name, Abraham, and he can make him the father of many nations. He can take a church Jesus-persecuting man by the name of Saul and he can make him the greatest missionary and church starter in the history of the world. He can take a loudmouth fisherman by the name of Simon and Jesus will give him a new name, the Rock. And upon Peter's great confession of Christ, not on Peter himself, this great confession that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, he can make this great preacher at Pentecost And that He can take your life, and your life, and your life, and your life, and my life. And He can take these untamed, broken lives. And He can bring restoration to them. And He can give us this power now to walk with Him and to know Him. So as this sovereign plan unfolds, we see this beauty of His work in this donkey, but it also Communicates to us what he can do in our life, but let me give one more perspective before we move on to the next point. I thought about these two guys. What it must have been like to walk into that city to try to find a donkey tied up. What they talked about as they went. Okay, he's never asked us to do something like this. This is a little bit different. I, I pictured them as they walk in. They they see. Okay, there there's there there it is over there. We're supposed to go over there and take that. They didn't. They weren't to buy one they weren't to barter for one they were to take it i encourage you to try this at costco today okay just take stuff just take it and walk out to your car and see how well that goes well this is the instructions that he told them just go in to see it you'll see it tied up just go over there untie it and you take it and if anybody says anything to you then you just tell them that the lord needs it there is such a tremendous principle here two of them actually Our lives, all of our lives as Christ followers would be so different if we lived in those two realities. If we would do what Christ told us and we would say what Christ tells us to say. So they step into the city, strange event in regard to just go take something and if anybody says something to you, Jesus has prepared them and he said this, you just say this to them and everything's going to be Okay, so I want you to hear that again. Our lives would be so different if we did what Christ tells us to do. And then when we encounter things, we would say what the Scripture teaches us to say and communicate about who He is. You see, our lives would just be way better off when we would trust what Christ tells us to do. One of the great men of the 19th century, he lived in the early part of the 19th century, he was a pastor, he was a leader of an orphanage, was a guy named George Mueller. He was fascinating, I don't know if you've ever read much about him, he was an incredibly fascinating man and he just had this incredible simple trust in God. Um, as he preached and as he led this orphanage. I want to share a few things with you about him because it has everything to do with what we just kind of talked about, to simply trust in Christ and and follow what he says and say what he says. This is how, this is how George Mueller lived his life. When he decided to establish this orphanage, this is what he said, this home will be only established, he said this in 1835, if God provides the means and the suitable staff to run it. And so he said, I'm not going to look to Bristol, the city of Bristol. I'm not even going to look to England, but I'm going to look to the living God who is the gold and silver, and there will be no charge for admission of any of the orphans that would come. There would be no restrictions of entry into the orphanage on grounds of class or creed. All of the staff will have to be both true believers and appropriately qualified for the work. And so he said about the girls, orphans that would come in, girls will be brought up, to learn how to, to work and, and learn how to do things. Uh, the boys would also um, be appropriately qualified for the work or, 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 or for a trade, to learn a trade. And then he said this, The chief and special end will be to seek with God's blessing to bring the children to the knowledge of Jesus Christ by instructing them in the Scriptures. And he just began to do this. They would take kids in. There was a time that one of the most famous stories connected with him and his faith is that uh, they had about 100 workers and orphans that were in the orphanage, and there was no bread, there was no milk, there was no food. There was no food in the building. So breakfast table had been laid out. That morning, he was like, orphans hadn't come down yet. He's like, man, how, what's going to happen? And so he prayed, and this is what he prayed. He said, Dear Father, we thank you for what you were about to give us to eat. And as he said those words, there was a knock on the door. The town baker, the local baker, said, I couldn't sleep last night, and I had this restlessness that said this, that y'all didn't have food. And so I went to my bakery at 2 a.m., and I've been baking, and here's bread. Baker... Walks away just a couple minutes later. Opened the door up. And right in front of the orphanage is a milk cart that Twill had broken. And it was going to take a while. And so the milkman said, I've got all of this milk on my cart. Will you all come out and get it? And so the kids were able to eat breakfast and have milk for the day. And if you've ever read about George Mueller, story after story after story, of living life like this. He got to that place where he recognized, I must live as Jesus lived. I must do what Jesus tells me to do. I must say what Jesus tells me to say. He had gotten to a place where he wrote this about his life. He said, there was a day when I died, I utterly died, to George Mueller. His opinions, his preferences, his tastes, and will. I died to the world, its approval or censure. I died to the approval or blame of even my brethren and friends. And since then, I have studied to show myself approved only unto God. And I think that's a call for us in our lives, is that we would surrender in such a way that I'm going to allow you, God, to lead me because you and I know this. When we take the reins in our life, it doesn't work well. But when we submit to allowing Him to ride us and lead us and to guide us, then we end up in the places that He wants us to be. And He brings a tameness and, again, a saneness and a stability to our lives that we do not know. This was also a day, let's look at the third thing, of incredible worship. And so so they bring... This donkey to Christ, he gets on it, and he begins to ride. Now, I, I can't fully picture it, but, but Jerusalem sits up on a hill, and there's a valley, the Kidron Valley is is down here. And just on the other side, Bethany is up here, Bethpage is up here, is the, is the Mount of Olives, and so Jesus is coming down, the mountain into the Kidron Valley, going to enter into Jerusalem. And if you were far away from anywhere in the place, you could see all of this crazy commotion happening as this central figure riding some kind of animal is coming down the road and people are... Taking cloaks off and shirts off, and they're laying them down. And it's clear that people have cut palm branches and they are laying them on the ground. And there would have been three different perspectives of what people were seeing. Let's talk about Rome's perspective. Rome would have looked at this and laughed. (laughs) Are you kidding me? This guy riding on a donkey is somebody that we ought to be threatened by. We're not going to be threatened by him. He's not going to be a threat. He doesn't have an army with him. And we've never faced an army with anybody's leader who looks like that. Some of the Jews would have laughed as well, possibly, or kind of shook their head that they had been waiting for Jesus to make himself known and be this conquering military ruler. And so why isn't he on a big war horse? Why isn't he surrounded with men with swords and soldiers? And then there would have been people, and I want you to listen to this one. There would have been people who would have connected what they saw with the prophet Zechariah. And they would have recognized we are literally seeing right there coming into Jerusalem the fulfillment of an Old Testament passage. Zechariah 9 9 says this Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble. And mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so as Jesus is coming in, some would have gone, that's Zechariah. That's the writing of Zechariah. Our king, our Messiah, our Christ, our anointed one is coming into the city to rescue us from our sin. And this moment, whatever moment it was, and whatever perspective people had, it became this incredible loud moment of worship. Some people got it, worshiping right in form, but didn't really fully understand. But yet there were some people who really understood what was happening and taking place. And the humbleness, the humbleness of it all is incredibly amazing. They're waving palm branches, not swords. He is sitting on old colts coats and not on a saddle. He's on a small donkey. He's not on a huge horse. He is surrounded by the common people, not by armed soldiers. It is quite the scene of the real conquering king who had come to rescue the hearts of people. Let me talk about the way they worship. Let's talk about palm branches just for a moment. So it says they took branches of palm trees and they laid them down. This was seen back in those days as A picture of a victory. You would lay these down. The Romans did this. Many of the people would do this. They would lay it down. Uh, Early Christians after this instance would do this. When they'd have great victories of the soul, they would lay down palm branches to celebrate the victory of the struggle and the wrestling that they had experienced. In Judaism, the palm represents peace and Plenty. And it was one of the four types of branches that they would use when they would come to the Feast of the Tabernacles, where they would make their temporary dwelling place, remembering how they lived in the desert to celebrate things. About 200 years before Christ rode into the city here, according to the historical book of 1 Maccabees 1351, there had been a great victory over Syria for the Jews, and they laid palm branches down to celebrate and wave them to celebrate the victory over the syrians and so on this day many of the people are proclaiming our victorious one has come into the city and we are worshiping and we are celebrating him let's talk about their clothing and their worship it was not easy back in those days you didn't have ross and plaza thrift store and all those places you can go to get clothing clothing was not easy to get it was a bit expensive and that's why people didn't have a lot of clothes and I want you to notice that they're the the men are most likely taking their cloaks off and they are laying something that is precious to them on the ground people are gathered along the road both sides people in front and this donkey being stable carrying Christ and people are worshiping and they are laying down their garments before him a couple thousand years ago, this was a symbol that you gave to someone who came to town. That if you were to lay your cloak and lay your clothes down, it was a symbol of, or, of communicating to them, I am willing to lay my life down before you. And I'm willing to submit to you and, and say to you that you are my king and you are to guide me. And I, I want you to know that I am under you and I will bow before you. So not everybody would have gotten Zechariah's connection, but some of them did. And then there were probably some of them who said, well, I'll lay my life down as I lay my coat down if you'll deal with Rome. Then I'll submit. But the accurate picture is we just lay our lives down, trusting in who he is and bowing before him. Have you and I made this choice in our own lives? that we're willing to lay before him everything and just lay it before him and let him have it, let him take it and keep it, or let him take it and make improvement upon it as he gives it back to be used for his kingdom. Have you and I made this choice? Let's talk about the words of their worship. So they began to say, Hosanna. This is a word that means save now, deliver now. So they began to say, save now, Jesus. Deliver now, Jesus. And so some of this likely was connected to their false perspective of the Messiah. Get rid of Rome now, Jesus, as you're riding in. Are you going to get rid of Rome now? Or are you going to restore the nation now? So some would have been thinking that. Some would have been, no, rescue us now. I have a sin issue. Rescue me, Savior, anointed Messiah, Another thing that was being done as Christ is coming in. so again, I want to remind us that as he's riding into town, another part of the city, you know what's happening? The Passover lamb is coming in through another gate. And they're celebrating over there. But that lamb can't do anything. It can't take away the sin of the world. But this lamb, who is the God-man, he can. And as he is coming in and riding in, this is what they would do as the Passover lamb would come into the city they would read what's called the Hallel psalms psalm 113 to 118 and as a reading that you get to psalm 118 in psalm 118 it says this that as he's coming in in another part of the city and in that part of the city where christ is at once again don't miss this in both instances psalm 118 26 is being quoted out loud and this is what it says. Blessed, Psalm 118, 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. So the words of their worship, Hosanna, save now, deliver now. We bless you who come in the name of the Lord. And then they connect and they say, King David, even this, even the king of israel so they are connecting that the messiah would come as a descendant of king david but the problem is you know this their hosannas turn into what on friday another shout and it's a shout of crucify you see it's real easy in a parade it's real easy this morning to lift our hands it's another thing to stand at the foot of the cross alone when nobody else wants to bow and be in awe of who he is. This is easy. It's different at the workplace. It's different at school. It's different with a neighbor. Sometimes it's different. If you're the only believer in a family, it's different and difficult by yourself. But it's worth it for him to be honored in every kind of way. Let me give you the fourth day aspect of the day here it was a day in which scripture was fulfilled so verse 14 we've talked about it a couple of times I'll just read it again this is Zechariah 9 9 and Jesus found a young donkey and he sat on it just as it is written this is Zechariah 9 9 fear not O daughter of Zion behold your king is coming sitting on a donkey's colt so the fulfillment of the Hallel Psalms 113 to 118 are being fulfilled on this day Zechariah 9.9 is being fulfilled on this day. Um, later in the week, Jesus will quote another verse of himself in Psalm 118, 22 through 23. This one you'll recognize. This is in Psalm 118. Jesus uses it. Peter writes about it. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And this is the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. And so this, on this day that he rides in, this is a day in which the scripture is fulfilled. Let's look at the fifth thing. It was a day of discipleship. Look at verse 16. His disciples did not understand all these things that they were seeing at first. But when Jesus was glorified, when he ascended and he sat down at the right hand of his father, then they remembered these things had been written about him. Notice these two things. The things that had been written about him that had come true. They had seen them. They had been eyewitnesses of these things. And then they also remembered the things that had been done to him. Like the celebration of him when he came into the city. Now I'm going to ask you another response question. You can raise your hand this time. I don't have to talk. Has anybody or did anybody, did anybody on the day of your salvation did you have mastery of the Christian life? Raise your hand. Okay. How about now, after all these years later, is anybody in the room that has a mastery of the Christian life? We're going to have a talk with you if you raise your hand, by the way. We, ne- we never get this. I remember I was 17, and I knew it was clear God had opened my eyes, and He had drawn me to His Son, and I believed. He enabled me even to have the power. I was a dead person. And he enabled me to have the power to believe. But I believed. And I didn't have any mastery of that. And now I'm here all of these years later, a long time. I've joked about this. You kids and you students in the room, some of us were born in the 1900s. So we're old. Way back when. And I came to Christ in 1983. And I stand before you today and I have so much to learn, so much I need to submit, so much I need him to continue to guide me. So sometimes we're hard on the apostles and just kind of shake our head, and we shouldn't. We're just like them. We're just like them. We don't have a mastery of this. But there comes a time, though, when there's a better understanding of these things, Not a perfection, but there's a, okay, I get this now, I get this, I get why this is I get why I'm not supposed to go down this road. I get why I'm supposed to believe this and why I'm to affirm this and why I'm to walk this way and why I'm to say no to this and to say yes to this. There, there comes an understanding. And so on this day, they had no clue the significance of all of this separation, this celebration and this, and this reality of them just worshiping Christ and the fulfillment of the Scripture and all of this great work. But later on, I, I like to think that sometime. They they would see each other maybe a couple of years after Christ had been away and they would see each other and they would have these conversations. You remember that day? You remember that day when this happened and we were there and we just had no idea. Now we 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 get it, we understand. You remember when he told us to forgive seventy times seven, not to get to four hundred and ninety forgivenesses and then stop? But to say this, no, you as believers, you forgive and you forgive and you forgive and you forgive and you forgive. Remember when he taught us these things? Remember when that thing happened to him? And I love for them that they began to connect the dots of that's why, that's why. And it began to settle in their hearts and their minds to have deep confidence in everything connected to Christ. You know, we can do that as well. Have, has it not been true of us? We heard stuff early on. We witnessed stuff early on. We didn't really understand it. But in time, we came to understand the meaning of those moments and the significance of those. And this remembrance in our lives, in their lives and in our lives, leads us to build our trust in the things that are written in Scripture. That we can trust that's there it's been fulfilled. And secondly, that we can build and have deep trust in the work that Christ has done for us. You know, I can I can only give I can I can clearly give this. I think God has done a number of different things. But one of the ways my faith was built in 2020 during COVID life is that for the first time in the history of the world, we saw how the world can shut down and how potentially a one-world ruler can come to power. Just think if things get worse than what we saw in 2020, and there rises up somebody in power to bring restoration and peace to a much more chaotic world than 2020 ever was. We've been able to see now, and we've always wondered, God, how can one person have control of the whole world? Well, we can kind of see it now, can we not? How this potentially can happen. And it built my trust to know this, is that God sees always what is coming. Why? Because He's already there. And because He's there, we can have trust and confidence in the now, regardless of what is happening and taking place and so for the apostles this was a day of discipleship just a couple more things as we finish it was also a day of bearing witness about Christ i want you to notice look at 17 17 and 18 are two different crowds one of the people laying palm branches down and celebrating the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. So notice that these people here, they were there in Bethany when Lazarus walked out of the tomb. And so they're continuing to talk about this guy riding in, Right, he he brought Lazarus out of the tomb after four days. Verse 18 is a different crowd. Look what it says. The reason why the crowd went out to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. These were not eyewitnesses so part of the crowd were eyewitnesses of the raising of lazarus part of the crowd were those who had just heard about the raising of lazarus and here's the difference this is the second seventh aspect of this day it had become a day of interest people were interested they'd heard about this guy who raised lazarus but they had not made a decision to have an intimate relationship and to really bow now some of them maybe later did But it's clear that some of them had come just out of interest, but they had not yet believed in this moment. Here's the last one. This was also a day of frustration for the religious leaders. Verse 19 says, So the Pharisees said to one another, You see, you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This is another example that John does in his Gospels, often where he gives a picture of irony. So the Pharisees meant everybody's going after Jesus. Our, af- our efforts, we've, wanted to, we've been trying to kill him for a while, and so our efforts are not going to work. But then John, when we get to John chapter 19, he's going to show that everything that they wanted comes to this fulfillment. And they think that they've won and that Christ has failed, but they have lost in Christ is victorious as he dies on the cross and bears our sin. Jesus, in five days, from Monday to Friday, goes from the most popular person in the country to its number one criminal. We've got to kill him. We've got to crucify him. And I'll say it one more time. It is easier to shout in a parade than it is to stand in awe at the cross when nobody else is willing to stand. But I would encourage us to stand at the cross. Do you see the difference of the way God exercises power and the way the world exercises power? Here's the one who spoke the world into existence. Riding in on a donkey, incredibly humble. The world says be bigger and better. More is better, not less. Gotta always have more, not less. Get your recognition. Don't ever live a life of humility. And Christ, just as he always does, turns things upside down. No, the kingdom of God is not like the kingdom of the world. So let me close with this. I think you'll like this. The Apostle John had a unique experience. He got to literally see Jesus with his physical eyes right into the city of Jerusalem. That day he was near. As a matter of fact, I didn't say this a while ago, but when Jesus is coming in and everybody's shouting, the Pharisees work their way through the crowd, and they get up right up next to Jesus as he's riding, probably side saddle on the donkey, and they say, hey, you've got to stop this. Tell your disciples to stop this. And you you remember what Jesus said to them? If I tell them to stop, can I just tell you what's going to happen if I tell all these people to stop? the rocks of Jerusalem are about to yell out that I'm the king of kings. So Pharisees, you have your choice. The people proclaim it or the rocks on this hill proclaiming my majesty and my glory. So John had this unique perspective. He got to see Jesus ride into the city and somebody just read it one more time. John twelve fourteen. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. He's coming again. Did you know that? He's coming again, and he's not going to be on a donkey. He's going to be riding on a war horse this time. And then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings. And what? Lord of lords. Can you imagine John, old man on the Isle of Patmos, gets this revelation? And I wondered this week, did he think back to that Monday of Passion Week? Seeing humble, sovereign king of the universe, Jesus, coming in on a donkey. And now he gets this picture of King Jesus coming from heaven to establish his millennial kingdom here on the earth. This is the picture of Jesus. And the question for us this morning is, are we willing to bow our lives before His majesty? To let Him do what He wants to in our lives? I'll say this to us, He is absolutely good in everything He does and everything He says. And so when He he says, give this up, give this to me, then give it to Him. He will either return it better or He'll take it because you and I don't need it and it's a distraction for us. Whatever it is, it is good and He's worthy of our faith. He's worthy of our trust because of who He is. But I, I hope that you saw this morning thousands upon thousands of people in your mind just worshiping glorifying him and people connecting the significance of scripture with the life of christ he is the humble king who will return as the conquering messiah praise his name praise his name let's pray